0: Howdy everybody, CJ here. Welcome to episode 223 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And unlike 223 out there in the real world, this 223 is not currently going to be very scarce to find or ridiculously overpriced if you do find it. All the gun folks in the audience know what I'm talking about. This is going to be a rebroadcast of my recent conversation with with James Gentleman on his podcast Blackbird, which is a really cool show that is definitely worth checking out if you're not already a listener to it. James had me on recently to talk about a variety of stuff, mostly history-related, and I thought I'd share it with you all as a DHP episode for those of you who don't already listen to Blackbird and who perhaps didn't see. I, of course, posted about my appearance on Blackbird on social media and all that, so if you didn't catch it there, you can catch it here. And if you already caught it off James's feed, You know, don't feel obligated to listen again unless you really want to. Just a few quick updates about me. I'm pretty well recovered from uh, my slow-motion breakdown caused by the long 2020, and I'm continuing to work on various DHP episodes behind the scenes. I've been doing a fair amount of traveling lately, mostly little trips, although... In a couple of days, I'm going to be leaving for my biggest trip of the summer, which is going to be a week at my mom's place in the North Carolina mountains, so very much looking forward to that. Should be a nice break from the brutal Florida summer. And while I'm in the mountains of North Carolina, I'm going to continue to work on the next Wilson episode and a few other things I've got in the works. I'm bringing some research materials on my laptop with me, so I'm going to do my best to actually get some stuff done in between visiting waterfalls and hiking in the mountains and all that fun stuff. So, and I just want to say thanks again to James for inviting me on his podcast. It's a great show. He is a super nice guy, a very smart guy, and he asks really good, thoughtful questions. So, he's kind of, I think, the Lex Friedman of the libertarian world. So, without any further introductory hoopla, here is my recent appearance on Blackbird with James Gentleman. CJ, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. James, it is great to finally be speaking with you after our previous attempts were sabotaged. I know, a couple of false starts thanks to the Florida infrastructure, I think, right? Yeah, and you know (laughs) what's goofy is we got hit by um, the leftovers of Tropical Storm Elsa just a few days ago. And that ended up, at least in my neck of the woods, being no big deal. It was basically just like, yeah, some a little bit extra rain, but not not a whole lot different from a typical uh Florida thunderstorm. Mm-hmm. And we didn't lose power or internet for even a moment during the tropical storm. Of course. And yet, you know, I'll have times like just now where where the internet just hiccups randomly out of the blue, even though it's sunny and clear skies <laughs> outside. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's gonna be here.
1: My Florida coworkers were were all uh just freaking out over the storm. So
0: they must not be lifelong Floridians then yeah, because, you know, all the hurricanes I've been through, I've lost count. Um, I, I was in a, I didn't get the brunt of it, but I wasn't too far from the brunt of it. Hurricane Andrew back in, I think 92. And that was a category oh. five that completely leveled a whole lot of Dade County. And I live one county up at the time, so it wasn't quite as bad, but you know, when, when you're, Eleven years old or whatever, and a category five comes to your your neighborhood, like tropical storm i'll go out and go boogie boarding no in a tropical deal. storm, like no joke yeah, I remember hurricanes Hugo and Andrew when I was little. those
1: were like the big they were all over the news I, I lived in Texas at the time, so I, I, w- I didn't experience them really, but
0: yeah, and the thing about Andrew was that was the first really big one that had hit Florida in a long time. there was just like a run of good luck where for like 30, 40 years, no really big hurricanes actually hit the Florida mainland. Hmm. And so considering also during that time, like millions of people moved to Florida from elsewhere who didn't really know what hurricanes could do, everybody was way under, underprepared. My family wasn't because my family's you know, been around a while in Florida, but lots of people were just clueless, like didn't even have a concept of like putting up shutters or what to do. And yeah, they just got, they just got flattened.
1: Wow. Okay, well, yeah. Let's get into the. Let's, let's. I guess we can get into the actual interview rather than talking about the weather. Although historical weather is always interesting. Can you kind of introduce yourself to the audience for those who aren't familiar?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um. am Cj Kilmer. Um. Lifelong Floridian. If that matters. Other than a couple of years when I was in grad school that I lived in Tennessee. I got a bachelor's degree in history a long time ago. I'm going to be forty in just a couple months. Um, then a master's degree years later ended up uh, for a variety of reasons, deciding not to continue on to a PhD, even though that was my original intention when I went to graduate school. So I left with just a master's degree. And with just a master's degree in history, these days, there's not a whole lot of uh, job opportunities in the field. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I decided I wanted to teach. That was really what I was interested in more than anything else at the time. And I found out, that one of the few things that you could do uh, in in most colleges and universities, if you've got a master's degree, they might let you teach as an adjunct and they'll give you like, you know, a class or two and and cruddy part-time pay and no benefits. And I was, I already had a kid by that point and was trying to kind of get my life going. So uh, I found out from a buddy of mine in graduate school who already had done this, that you can actually still at community colleges or, you know, they're called different things in different places, but basically what we think of as a community college, you know, where most of the students are two-year students and that sort of thing, you can still get hired as a full-time faculty member and, you know, get a, it's not a great salary, but you get a salary and you get some okay benefits and whatever. So that's the path I went down. Um, I taught as an adjunct for one year where I was teaching actually at two different schools in different counties. That was, that was a hell of a schedule where I, I'd, I'd drive a county up teach two classes in the morning at one college, and then I'd drive back to my home county and teach two counties um, you know, in the, in the afternoon. And it was almost a full-time class load, but I was making nowhere near what a full-time uh, faculty member would make. And so I did that for a year, but then I did manage to land the job that I still have to this day, which is a full-time, uh, basically community college gig. It's not called community college here anymore. It's called a state college, but it's basically what it is. So I've been teaching college history since... I think 06. So I think I'm, I'm right at 15 years of actually being in the trenches. And then um, almost exactly seven years ago, it was actually seven years ago last month, I started my podcast, which is the Dangerous History Podcast. So um, I had learned so many things and gotten interested in so many things. Uh, one of the reasons I decided not I didn't want to get a PhD and one of the many reasons was that you generally have to get super specialized mm-hmm. and like you know your 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 dissertation is like you're drilling super detailed into yeah. one area and, <laughs> and i never liked like, that. like
1: like like feminism in 19th century london that kind of thing yeah,
0: yeah 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 i'm i'm interested in early 19th century working class you know organizations in in birmingham or something yeah. and so you you write these super specialized articles and and maybe books that like hardly anyone ever reads other than the three other people on the planet who specialize in that field. And I was more interested in just actually teaching and I I enjoyed that. And I was always interested in looking into different things all the time. Maybe I have like a weird kind of ADD, I don't know. But I was always, you know, my primary field in graduate school was British Empire. My secondary field was American history. But I was reading into all kinds of other stuff all the time on my own. Uh, Initiative without anyone telling me to. And so between that and then the research I did and the thinking I did uh, in teaching my classes, you know, I was basically teaching for like seven, eight years before I started my Mm -hmm. podcast. I had accumulated a lot of knowledge and stories, and history actually was a part of me eventually becoming like a radical, you know, anarchist type of a person. And so I kind of felt like I don't know how anyone could really, I mean, I know why, but I, in a way, I almost don't know how someone could really study history much and not become an anarchist, given that it's basically, as, as John Adams said, uh, history is philosophy teaching by example, right? So in other words, if you're too stupid to just figure out in like an abstract philosophical sort of way, you know, that that power is dangerous and, and states are dangerous and all these sorts of things, okay, Here's five thousand years of history of you know wars and and uh, genocides and and you know rulers uh, exploiting their people and doing horrible things and so on and so on and so on all right history was a was a part of leading me down down this path to where I met ideologically. I kind of felt like well maybe I can uh tell my version of history, and you know not only will that entertain people. But it will, you know, hopefully teach them something. And whether they end up always agreeing with me 100% or not, I wanted to at least give them something to to think about. And so, you know, as I'm sure you know, and probably everybody listening knows, um, academia is overwhelmingly um, a a narrow spectrum from kind of, that runs from center-left progressivism out to, you know, downright Marxism. And like, that's the allowable opinion in most of academia. And the so-called social sciences, like history, are even... More, maybe, only, maybe only the humanities and education are even more ideologically monolithic than the social sciences. So I, I also kind of felt like, you know, the vast majority of what people get out there in terms of history, it's either going to be kind of like simplified nationalistic sort of, you know, uh, boomer con rah 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 team america history which i'm i'm not a fan of and you know i poke holes in that all day long mm-hmm. um or it's going to be if it's not that if it's more kind of like academic and less sort of popular history it's going to be you know the standard somewhere between progressive and communist uh, sort of narrative and uh, i got a lot of problems with that too so um you know i wanted to make the podcast i wanted to make i was i was inspired in part by dan carlin he was one of the the handful mm-hmm you know, um, hard gray history. He was one of the handful of podcasts I would say was the most influential in kind of making me want to start my own. Um, and, you know, he's, he's not bad. Like he's, he's pretty good. He's not quite a libertarian, but like he's pretty good on a lot of important issues. But even so, you know, my view of history is a little different from his. And so I was like, well, he shows that it's possible to have a podcast where you do long historical, you know, narratives and stuff and like tons of people listen to it so that's proof of concept and so you know why don't i try to do that but do it my way with my you know own different take on things and you know he's a different guy from me he's got a different style than me mm-hmm. uh he's very good at what he does but you know i kind of felt like i also i sort of felt and, and maybe i'm maybe i'm prone to to making up grander narratives than i should to kind of inspire myself but i sort of felt like the all the time i had spent trying to get a bunch of 18 and 19-year-olds in my classes who 90% or more of them are only there to punch out a gen ed box uh, for for a credit or two, and that's it. Um, If I can get a decent amount of them, at least, certainly never all of them in my classes, but I can get a decent percentage of them interested uh, and hold their attention most of the time, then I could do it on a podcast. And I, I basically sort of told myself like, oh yeah, all the time I spent teaching community college and figuring out how to entertain and educate a bunch of 19-year-olds that don't want to be there, that's sort of like when the Beatles were, were up and coming and they were you know, famously playing in like bars and strip joints in, in Germany uh, to audiences that didn't particularly care who they were or, or know anything. But like, that's how they got good. Because if you could um, you know, play to a strip club full of drunk Germans and some of them are actually tapping their feet and like, hey, this sounds good. It's like, okay, well, then eventually you can become huge. And so that's that's the kind of delusions of grandeur that um, led me to finally get off my ass. I I probably thought about starting my podcast for a couple years before I did. Mm. So anyway, that's and I've been doing it for seven years, and I've covered all kinds of different topics. Um, Civil War is probably the most popular series I've done so far, although my current series I'm in the middle of about Woodrow Wilson is also also a fan favorite. So I I released part eight in my Woodrow Wilson series about a week ago.
1: Your Civil War series. You differ from the sort of, I don't know the word, like the conventional right libertarian viewpoint that the Civil War was only aggression by Lincoln against the South for seceding. It had had not nothing to do with slavery, but that it wasn't primarily about slavery. Is that right?
0: Do you? uh... Yeah, yeah. I would say that I think that that view is sort of like half right because wow. it's only looking at half the question. The the view that is closest to my own on the Civil War is that of Jeffrey Hummel, who wrote one of the books on the Civil War that I recommend the most, which is um, Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men. And the way he explains it, and this is essentially my argument too, is in order to pick apart the question of why the war happened, you really have to look at two separate questions. You have to look at, for one, why did Southerners want to secede? And then number two, why would the Union not let them? Mm-hmm. And so if you say, look, um, Lincoln didn't start the war and try to reconquer the South initially because he wanted to free slaves and he didn't make slavery a war aim until basically the second half of the war. That's correct. That's correct. That's correct. So in other words, it wasn't like the South said, we're going to secede. And Lincoln goes, you know, normally we would let you go. But by golly, because you have those slaves, we're going to go to war because we want to free them all. No, yeah. you can go find. And, you know, all the things that that somebody like, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Di Lorenzo would quote, right, of Lincoln saying in the first year or two of the war repeatedly, I'm not going to war to free slaves. That's true. but But the fact that the Union didn't primarily go to war in order to free slaves does not necessarily mean that the South seceded not over slavery, right? And so what I did is in my mind, what an historian should do, which is to go to the primary sources. And so I said, all right, if <clears throat> if we are to believe that slavery was not uh, a major factor and not even the primary factor— motivating southerners to want to leave the union well first off there's all kinds of thing problems with that like if that's the case then why didn't any states also choose to secede mm-hmm. right why is it that the states that seceded the soonest happened to be the states with the largest percentages of slaves among their population and who are the most economically dependent on slavery why is it Mississippi and South Carolina seceding first, which happened to be the only two states in the South that had a black majority at the time and that were the most economically dependent on slavery. Why is that? Why did states with, with smaller proportions of slaves like, um, you know, Tennessee, why did they not secede until later? If there's no correlation between slavery and wanting to exit the union and why did the, the, um, the border states, which had the smallest percent, which had slavery as a legal institution, but had relatively small percentages of slaves, right? States like, um, you know, Missouri, Kentucky, Delaware. You know, why did they ultimately not secede? Now, I know part of why they didn't secede is because Lincoln um, instituted martial law in, in at least some of those places and prevented them. So I get that. But even so, there's obviously a super strong correlation between how much a particular place is dependent on slavery for its economy and how big the, the slave population is relative to the, the white population. There's a huge huge correlation there between how how quickly and how badly that state wanted to secede. But then the other thing I did, and I had an episode where I literally went through this for like probably a couple of hours. Um, it was one of the latter episodes of my Civil War series, which I said, okay, if in fact – because people will say things like, oh, no, pri- the South primarily wanted to cede over, secede over the tariff. And for sure, they were unhappy about the high tariffs. That's, that, that was an issue, right? But the question is, was that a bigger issue to them than slavery? And some people will argue that it was. My, my point was, let's go to the primary sources. Because that's what an historian ultimately, that, that's like the definitive thing that you appeal to, right? And so I said, all right, let's go look at what were prominent Southerners saying in the immediate lead up to the civil war and even into like the earliest days of it, what were they saying when they were writing articles and giving speeches? And I looked at political leaders, I looked at sort of intellectual leaders, media figures, people like that. And I looked at also religious leaders, you know, um, influential uh, Southern pastors and things when they were speaking or writing saying explicitly why they wanted to leave the union, what reasons did they give and where did they give emphasis? Mm -hmm. And in their own words, in their own words, again and again and again and again, they flat out said, um, we primarily are concerned about preserving the institution of slavery. Mm-hmm. They said it. Now, the, the lost cause narrative, which is, oh, it wasn't, the, the South really didn't care about keeping their slaves, which is insane. Uh, you know, they, they were really just worried about the tariff and, and it was about states' rights. It's like, yeah, okay, but states' rights to do what? <laughs> OK, were they worried that Lincoln was going to interfere with the right to go to the church of their choosing? No. Were they worried that Lincoln was going to, I don't know, take away the right to keep and bear arms or the right to free, free speech and press? No. What right specifically were they really, really worried about Lincoln interfering with in their states? Right. And again, go look at their own words. They will tell you because they didn't think at the time in 1859, 1860, 1861, Southerners didn't think there was anything wrong or on PC about slavery and defending mm-hmm. it. And so they were very upfront. They flat out said things like we are primarily leaving over the Negro question. Okay. Um, now it's only later that you start to get Southerners. It's mostly after the war that Southern leaders start to say things like, well, you know, it wasn't really about slavery all along. And to me at that, at that point it's like, well, What you're trying to do, I think, is to, you lost, and now you're trying to retcon. That's the word I was going to use. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You're you're trying to retcon why you left when when you were leaving. You were saying flat out, we're leaving mostly because of slavery. And they did occasionally mention the tariff. And by the way, also, several of the states... I forget off the top of my head how many, I think at least three or four of the states that seceded. When they seceded, they, they also, their legislatures, uh, drafted and, you know, passed or whatever statements explaining in detail why they were leaving. And in every single case of a state that did that, slavery is clearly the number one most important issue. Now, they also might mention some other issues. Uh, they, frequently would briefly mention the tariff, but they'd spend like paragraph after after paragraph ranting about slavery and then like, oh yeah, also we don't like the tariff. You know, so it's it's pretty clear where the emphasis was. Um, I think Texas was a little bit unusual because Texas brought up something about related to, I forget if it was hostile Indians or the the Southern border or something. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even in that case though, that was after they ranted about slavery for way, way more paragraphs. So, so yeah, my view is like, In general, I'm in favor of of decentralization and secession, but we do have to kind of also keep in mind why a particular place wants to secede, Mm -hmm. because presumably there might be cases where a group of people wants to secede from something, and the main reasons they want to do it are not necessarily reasons I'd be on board with, right? Like, if, I don't know, let's just randomly pick a state. If, If Massachusetts... Wanted to secede from the union. I mean, in general, I'd be like, okay, don't let the door hit you on the way out. As far as I'm concerned, but but if they were like explicitly saying the main reason we want to uh, secede from the union is so that we can institute genocidal Pol Pot communism in Massachusetts, I wouldn't go well as a libertarian. I always have to think secession is great, right? Therefore, these are good guys, right? And I understand the desire because people who think like we do you know, we tend to see the U.S. federal government as as the bad guy and for a lot of good reasons, right? We look at, you know, Waco and all these other things where, like, they really act badly. And we want to sympathize with whoever's on the other side. But, like, you can look at what happened at Waco and be like, yeah, the government's clearly, you know, bad. They're doing bad things, that doesn't mean we necessarily have to like try to make a hero out of David Koresh and his people. I mean, some of right. them were good people, as far as I know, but like he seems pretty creepy. He does seem a bit culty. I don't think he he and his people at all deserve what happened to them. But I don't need to put him on a pedestal and act like he's a great guy just because he's the enemy of the government. And that's sort of the, my take on the Confederacy. And by the way, I say that as a person who's lived in in the South my entire life. Mm. You know, I understand the desire. And and also, by the way, I understand sometimes you'll hear people say things like, "Well, you know." a lot of the just regular Confederate soldiers were thinking more in terms of um, defending their, their home when Union armies were invading. And they were like, okay, I get that. But that's not the same thing as why did the leaders want to do it in the first place? Yeah. You know, uh, any war, there's going to be lots of complicated motivations for people uh, to fight. And there's different motivations, depending whether you're talking about generals, whether you're talking about politicians, whether you're talking about, you know, enlisted soldiers. But I don't know. I, I just feel like there's, there's sort of a moving of the goalposts And and I don't I don't make the accusation that the people who take the more you know more Confederate sympathetic line I don't try to impute motive to them Mm -hmm. if if I don't have reason like if I actually hear or read some of these people explicitly defending slavery I'll be like okay I think I know what's going on here Mm -hmm. generally not though these people so I I don't I don't do what the establishment does which is immediately accuse them of like being you know closet slavery sympathizers or whatever I, I don't do that but you know I just kind of leave it blank, like then why is it just that you've never bothered to look at what the Confederate, you know, what Southern leaders actually said at the time that the, the secession was happening because they were making no secret that their number one thing motivating them was slavery and trying to preserve it. So anyway, that that's, that's, that's my take on that issue. And so I, I end up concluding ultimately that like neither side in the civil war was fighting for the best possible reason they could have been primarily. Right. So were there individual northerners who who fought in the war and supported the war because they were abolitionists yes they were a pretty small percentage though most northerners that wasn't their primary motive in in wanting to fight the war um were there individual southerners who you know weren't primarily thinking about slavery and were just thinking about other issues i'm sure there were but you know in terms of the the preponderance most northerners were were fighting to preserve the union which means to prevent people from exiting who want to exit and to me that's not a good That's not a good reason to go to war. Um, And most Southerners, even a lot of rank-and-file Southerners who didn't own slaves because they were poor, still wanted to protect the institution because they had been propagandized for generations that slavery is good even for poor white Southerners who own no slaves. Now, I don't think that's correct. I think slavery actually harmed poor white Southerners in a variety of ways. But the point is, a lot of poor white Southerners believed keeping the institution of slavery going was in their interest too. And that's another thing. I, I actually did cite some sources in that series that indicate just that that a lot of poor southerners who were never going to own slaves in their entire life because they were too poor nonetheless still believed it was a good thing to protect the institution because they had been told oh if you set the slaves free they'll all go crazy and start raping your sister tomorrow mm-hmm. so
1: yeah i think bob murphy actually has done some work on the like economic impact of slavery and concluded basically that it
0: was a it was a net negative for
1: for everybody
0: yeah yeah the the well I wouldn't say for everybody. I would say for most people. Yeah. And to me, the way I kind of looked at it was, um, and I, I did read, I'm not familiar with what Bob Murphy has done on that, but I, I read some of the classic books on the economics of slavery. I also did a series before I did the American civil war series. I did uh history of American slavery. It was like six or seven parts just on that. So, you know, I've, I've read a lot of the literature that tries to analyze like, was slavery, you know, a net positive. And to me, what it comes down to is sort of like a public choice thing, right? Like, you know, America's uh, USDA policies, they harm most Americans in a variety of ways. They they cause certain foods to be more expensive than they mm-hmm. otherwise would be. They cause certain foods that are less healthy to be cheaper and more available than they otherwise would be. And they, they you know, they, they cost you dollars and cents in a variety of ways. But to the big ag companies, it's a net benefit to them. And so it's a classic public choice case of um, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. And to me, that's, that's how to see slavery economically yeah. is, yeah, obviously it harmed the slaves eight ways from Sunday. And I think it's, it's pretty clear that it also harmed uh, non-slave owners, you know, poorer whites and whatever in the South in a variety of ways economically. But to the people that own the slaves, and especially to the, the tiny percentage who own significant numbers of slaves it was a giant benefit to them. And so just like uh, ConAgra and Monsanto are willing to, to dump huge amounts of resources into lobbying to keep their subsidies and things in place, so the, the planter elite in the antebellum South was willing to you know, exercise all kinds of, of power and, and political capital and whatever uh, in order to hang on to their, their little public choice you know, fiefdom in a way. Mm. So, and, and I think it, it's pretty clear that it harmed... If if you wanted to just say like the overall economic development of the South, I think it's pretty clear that uh, slavery hobbled it, and then um, you know a lot of things that followed after the Civil War continued to hobble uh, the South's economic development. And it's not until after World War II that parts and only parts of the South begin to catch up to the rest of the country uh, in overall economic development and prosperity and all that. And even today, many of the poorest counties. In this country, are in the south.
1: Mm, yeah, and you know Mississippi is just known for how awful its schools are. For instance, yeah, um, like they're just kind of the laughing stock. I mean, I live, I grew up in Texas, and now live in Minnesota. And the culture here, when they find out that I'm from Texas, it's lessened a little bit. But like you, when I first moved here ten ish years ago, if someone found out that I was from Texas, they would look at me with sympathy, like, "Oh, I'm sorry," as if I had come from some like third world country or something like that. Yeah,
0: and Texas, you know, started to boom after World War II. Yeah, yeah imagine um, if as, I was from Alabama. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Te- Texas is sort of like in a similar boat to Florida, where um, Texas and Florida, for a variety of reasons, really started to boom mm. um, a little bit during and then especially after World War II, and part of it had to do with aerospace stuff happening. A huge part of it was simply the invention of air conditioning, which... There actually were oh, sure. early versions of air conditioning way back in the 19th century, but they weren't the same as the modern ones. They weren't as effective as, mm-hmm. as modern AC. And modern AC was around in the early 20th century, but it was it was like when electric lights first came out. Like they were only in giant department stores yeah. and you know rich guys' mansions or whatever. AC was the same thing. And it's not until really the 50s that AC, uh, it was, I think, the and, and I, I'm big into Florida history, so I know all this stuff, but yeah. um, I think it was the, the carrier, which is still an a c brand uh the carrier a c window unit that was developed in I think the early fifties was like the first air conditioner that like middle class people could start to afford you know and then it wasn't long until uh central a c became a middle class thing and then eventually almost everybody in the in the deep south mm. gets it other th- other than the poorest people today um but that was a huge deal, but yeah, so you know it's interesting that Florida people kind of realize is sort of its own thing it is not. You know, there's parts of Florida that are still very southern. Where I'm at is is kind of southern. In Panhandle, it's it's called Florabama for a reason. (laughs) But but people kind of understand, like, oh yeah, Florida ain't what it was, you know, 70 years ago. For some reason, Texas, even though Texas has, you know, developed and changed and whatever, at least as much as Florida, there's still this goofy stereotype. I I think it's starting to change with the tech people going to Austin or whatever. But yeah. Yeah. Texas is interesting. I've, I've, I've only been there a couple of times and only really to West Texas.
1: Yeah. Well, if you ask a Texan, Austin ain't Texas. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I figured that out a long time ago. Like I've never actually been to Austin, but you know, just kind of looking at it from afar for at least 20 years, I was like, oh yeah, that's basically like Asheville, North Carolina. You uh know, it's, it's basically, you know, Portland light. Yep. Yeah. That's it. So when I was first
1: getting into politics, so to speak, I was far on the left. And that was because I opposed the war in Iraq. And so I found all these websites and stuff back then, blogs weren't really a thing, at least not like in the, in the, on a large scale, but there was this guy, his pseudonym was T-Rex. He was also a community college professor in Florida, and he was a political science professor. And he was, you know, like me on the left, I was hugely influenced by him. But the reason he used a pseudonym was because his students had no idea what his politics were. And in fact, he would do a survey at the end of of every school year and to kind of gauge how unbiased he sound. And his students always came down on the center, right. Do your students know your politics? Do they listen to your
0: podcast? Are they like aware? Um, I have reason to believe some of them have found it one way or another. I do not mention it in class. Mm. I do not mention it in class, you know, my feeling is like, hey, people want to want to go Googling around for me or whatever and they find it somehow. Or if they're, if they're Googling a topic I mentioned in class and it also happens to be a topic I've done a podcast about and they find it that way, I'm like, all right, whatever. But in general, I kind of keep those two things separate just because, I don't know, maybe, maybe this is because since I was, um, I forget what, I don't even know what age I was when my, my parents divorced. I was, I was basically not much more than a toddler. Mm. And one of the things that happened is my parents have completely different personalities. I I don't understand how they ever were married at all in the first place. Like to me, it's not a surprise they got divorced. I'm surprised they even made it past a couple of dates and totally different personalities. And once they separated and they both, they both successfully remarried people who are more like themselves. And so I grew up going back and forth between two radically different households. And so that kind of made me comfortable with the idea of kind of compartmentalization Mm -hmm. and separate spheres and understanding like there's different rules over here than there are over here. And so that's been mostly my approach to podcast versus teaching. Now there's definitely some overlap. There's definitely, you know, some of the things that I, I have covered on my podcast in the past are things that I typically do cover in my classes. Like for example, some of the some of the naughty deeds of the CIA in the 20th century, that sort of stuff, you know, talking about like overthrowing democratic governments in the third world and things like that. You know, I do cover a lot of that stuff and and I do, I do bring in some pretty radical ideas to some of my classes. Um, I I have my US history two classes every year. One of the things that they read is War is a Racket by Smedley Butler. And then we mm. have a, you know, time permitting, we have a long detailed discussion about it. Um, so you know, my my classes are surprisingly radical, but the thing is. I don't, I've had times in the past where I've sort of mentioned my views, but I've gotten less and less comfortable with labels just in general. And so the way I explain it now is I say, look, I'm for peace, freedom, and prosperity. Like if you want to know what my political values are, they're peace, freedom, and prosperity, because I think those are the three legs of the stool called human flourishing. And You need all the legs of a three-legged stool. The stool is not going to stand. Mm. And so to me, if you're attacking any one of those those legs, peace, freedom, and prosperity, you're endangering not only the other legs, you're endangering the stool that is human flourishing. And that's the way I explain it now. And I, I do tell them explicitly, by the way, usually in an early lecture, I tell them that I don't vote. I do tell them that. And I tell them, I'm not telling you this because I'm telling you not to vote. What I tell them is, I'm telling you this just to be honest. And I just want you to do whatever you think is right, but make your own decision. But when I say, you know, I'm for peace, freedom, and prosperity, I immediately follow up with, before I get a question, I immediately follow up with, now I know what you're thinking. Isn't everybody for that? Well, they probably would say they are, but I I don't think they really are, right? In other words, and I kind of say like, I'm pretty sure that that the, the Democrats and Republicans are not actually consistently in favor of peace, freedom, and prosperity, or at least not all of those things. And if, if they think they are, I think they're mistaken. I think their means are not going to work. So that's sort of just how I address that. And I never, you know, I, I will bring up if I'm ever like kind of criticizing one party a little more than the other for a time or whatever. And I do bash both parties throughout American history.
1: That's cool.
0: But I will mention like, look, you know, if say I've been kind of ragging on the Democrats more just because we've been covering a period where they were in power or whatever, I'll say like, look. I'm not a Republican. I'm not saying this because I'm, you know, I think the Republicans are great guys. I think I think they have got all kinds of issues too, right? So I, I do kind of bring that up every now and then just to say like, look, I don't have a dog in the the elephant versus donkey fight. I think they're both pretty pretty stupid and pretty evil. But, you know, it's not as in class, it's not as consistent as a podcast. And of course it's way detailed because, you know, they have to like gallop the civil in a few hours of class time it's like uh, it's not going to be anywhere near the same experience as listening to like 15 hours of me doing it on the podcast (laughs) you know the details just not going to be there yeah i can imagine but but it's surprising what i get away with one one more thing I'll, I'll, i'll just mention uh just to give give a sense of like i i quote unquote get away with a lot when i teach world history too which um i haven't taught very often in in recent years but when I do, usually the first thing, very first thing I have my students read before they even start reading a chapter in the textbook is Anatomy of the State by Murray Rothbard. Oh, wow. So, so I, I do kind of come out swinging sometimes. I mean, to have like, you know, the first thing you read in a world history class be Anatomy of the State, like, boom, you know. To me, that's a pretty good pretty good punch. And, and students seem to respond to it, you know, especially the, the kind of more tuned in ones. Mm-hmm.
1: Do 18, 19-year-olds kind of grasp what Rothbard's talking about? The sharper ones do. Yeah. Cool. I don't think I read that until my mid to late twenties or so. And I got it then, but I had been steeped in, you know, other more, I guess, elementary political theorists. Not that, not that Rothbard is tough to read or anything. Uh, it, you know, I mean, he's, he's, he's,
0: some of his economic, well, some of his pure economic stuff yeah. I find a little bit tough, but I've um, still never
1: read man economy and state, but, uh, you know for new liberty and and especially anatomy of the state i mean you can read that in one sitting
0: yeah yeah that's that's one of my favorite ones to recommend as far as like a introduction to rothbard mm-hmm. um there's there's a few others that are pretty good of course I, I like a lot of his history stuff too like his um the history stuff he did about the progressive era and the federal reserve that's yeah. always good stuff
1: yeah so when i think of like popular history i think of like howard zinn who comes obviously from sort of a Marxian angle, Thad Russell, who comes from, you know, sort of the, you know, what a conservative would say, the degenerate angle, what a liberal might say, the, the cultural progression of America or whatever angle, or like even Bill O'Reilly and his biographies that are probably not even his writing. All right. Do you think there's such thing as like objective
0: for unbiased history? No. And I actually did an episode about exactly that question I want to say it was little over a year ago. I think I think cool. it would have been spring of 2020, like f- still fairly early on into the lockdown. I'm trying to uh, bring it's up. It's episode my... 200. I... Oh, thank
1: you. <laughs> I okay. listened to it right before this. That was totally oh. a seated question.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, okay. All right, cool. Yeah, no. Um, you know, anybody uh, who who wants the the painful detail, my painful detailed attempt to address that question. Yeah, bring up uh, my episode 200 from a little over a year ago, and you'll get the whole thing. And by the way, I've, I've given I've given uh, shorter, condensed versions of that two classes as a lecture, basically. Oh, cool. So, you know, I, I, I do sometimes go kind of meta a little bit. And it's one of those things where I know I'm going to lose a certain percentage of the students, but I also know that the the whatever little percent that are like the really, really bright ones that are really, really hearing what I'm saying, that this is likely to sort of like knock their paradigm a little bit. And that's what I want to do. Wow! But my view is that you have to first off, start off with just the fact of what history is, which is history is not the past. I'm not someone who who believes that objective reality does not exist. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe there is an objective reality. I know that there's no way I can prove it without you know, leveraging the same reality that someone could just say, well, all the things you're using to try and quote unquote prove there is objective reality could all just be a simulation, or could all just sure. be you hallucinating. You could be a brain, and it's like, okay, all of these things are possible, but unless and until I have some definitive proof that any of these these uh, matrix scenarios are going on, I have to uh, Occam's razor assume that kind of what I'm perceiving of reality that there is something there, mm-hmm. but. I believe there is an objective reality, but I also believe that our understanding of it is always at least to some degree subjective. Now, there are ways that we can try to reduce the subjectivity of how we perceive certain things. Like, for example, you know, we can use uh, standard measurements to try and measure certain things. And we can, rather than just being like, well, I think it's kind of hot outside, we can be like, oh, it's 92 degrees Fahrenheit, right? And so there are methods that you can use to get closer to objectivity, but there's still going to be limitations. And even in in things like physics, there's still degrees to which subjectivity will will be a thing. But in something like history, it's even more so. And the distinction I always point out is history is not the past. The past already happened. I happen to believe that it it happened in an objective physical reality and whatever. But the point is, it's already gone. And so when you're making history, what you're really doing is creating a, a depiction or a reproduction. And in that episode and in my lectures, when I bring this up in my classes, I, I bring up the work of art, The Treachery of Im- Images by the 20th century uh, Belgian artist René Magritte, maybe pronouncing that right. And it's the famous, a lot of people don't recognize the name and the artist, but they recognize the, the painting. It's a painting of a pipe, like a tobacco oh, yeah. pipe. And underneath, written in French, is the phrase, this is not a pipe. And the point that Magritte was making is, here's this picture of a pipe, and it's done pretty realistically. like It's done to look kind of three-dimensional. There's little shadows and highlights and whatever. It's not photo quality exactly, but it's, it's very clear like yeah this is this is a pipe and he's saying this is not a pipe and the point is just you know paint on paper this is paint on paper arranged to be a representation of a pipe you can't actually pick it up and smoke it and there's there's always limitations when you're dealing with depictions there's always limitations um, another thing i bring up is the idea the map is not the territory and to me the relationship between and the past is the same as the relationship between a map and a piece of territory. The piece of territory exists. The map is, is a very simplified depiction of the territory, and it's always going to have limitations of various types. There's no way you could make a map of a territory that actually contains all of the information and attributes about that territory. There's no way you could do it realistically. And if you did, it would be completely useless because the map would be as large and complex as the actual territory. And so with history, it's even more complicated because you're creating a a depiction of something that's already gone, that already happened. Whereas, you know, if you're creating a map, at least of something that still exists physically, you know, there's more opportunity to go and study it and examine it and really try to make your map as accurate as possible. Whereas with history, it's almost like you're doing something forensically. And the further back the thing you're looking at is, the more likely it is that there's going to be even more limitations on what you can actually know for sure. And so history is a depiction of the past based on primary source information. And so then you run into the limitations of, um, you know, what sources even exist about the topic that you're trying to, to dig into, you know, what sources were even created in the first place, like the paper trail of history. And then of that, what of those have actually survived the ravages of time? And then you're dealing with also whatever sources you're looking at were also created by human beings. And so they're going to have their own subjectivity and their own you know, um, biases. And what like if you're reading, for example, an account written by Spaniards of conquering Mexico, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, probably some of what they're saying is, is objectively accurate, but also you've got to take into account their own biases and perceptions and the limitations of their knowledge at the time. Um, and so it's very complicated. And then this is all being filtered through a person called an historian who has their own personal uh, subjective biases, ideologies, worldview, et cetera. And it's not just like that those things enter into the process at the last minute as you're sitting down to write your book or your essay or create your historical documentary, like, oh, that's where suddenly your ideology and your worldview and your biases enter the picture. Um, The point I make on that is no, 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 it does, but it starts way before that even at the at the level of, huh, I'm interested in looking into and maybe writing a book about subject X. Probably your biases, your ideology, your worldview made that. Like, why exactly are you interested in the Western front of World War II and not not any of the infinite other times, places, topics of history, right? So all along the entire process, and, and I feel the same way too about news. I think the, the idea of objective news is ridiculous. Yeah. Because the, the reporter is making infinite subjective value-based choices the whole way. Mm-hmm. Starting with, what story am I even going to look into? And then proceeding to, who am I going to talk to? You know, What sources am I going to look to for that? And then, all right, now that I've gone and consulted the sources that I chose to consult, how am I going to condense this down into a newspaper article or a couple minutes on the TV news or whatever? um the idea that 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 there's any possibility that that can be done objectively to me is just just complete fantasy
1: there's a hard news organization here in minnesota called bring me the news and yesterday they published a story why this is news i'm not sure but it was about louis ck is doing three shows here at a at a comedy club and they sold out immediately and so the first sentence in in the article and again this is this is presented as straight up news was disgraced comedian louis ck sells out three shows in minutes right like all of that the fact that they covered the story and the fact that they called him a disgraced comedian and the fact that like it was the the comedy club's fault like that gets into it all of that is just so just ooh to me and i don't know if other people see that I, i think the word disgrace probably would ring a lot of bells to most people but
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you you can imagine that potentially you could say it in a more neutral way, I guess you could, you could sort of be like, you know, controversial comedian who had some allegation, like you could, you could phrase it in a less loaded way, but they almost never do. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of their favorite ways in, in the media, in print media, at least, and they'll, they'll do it verbally, I guess, on TV as well, is when they put the comma after someone's name, and then there's like the little phrase, summing up who they are. Yeah. And it's usually something super loaded. Yeah. It's like, you know, so-and-so, comma, a controversial far-right extremist, comma, yeah. said or, blah, blah, blah.
1: Uh, Dr. Fauci, like, it just became part of his name. The nation's top infectious disease expert. Every single news outlet was was printing that as part of his name, like yep. everywhere. I guess that for the last couple of minutes, um, we're, the reason the show is called Blackbird is because we're taking our broken wings and learning to fly. So as a, as a historian, I would assume that you have developed techniques for reading history or even reading the first draft of history, which is what we call journalism and taking a critical eye to it. How would you recommend to people that they like read the news critically? Are there, are there like specific techniques that you would, that you would take other than just looking for loaded
0: terms like that? Well, I, 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 yeah, I don't have like a simple sort of, you know, five point or 10 point mm-hmm. um, uh, formula or method that I use. Uh, I guess my method is sort of I've, I've developed it uh, organically just by always being uh, a curious person and, and a bit of an autodidact. I mean, I was I was a weirdo who was reading like big, dense history books when I was like 15 yeah. uh, just because I found them interesting. But you know, if you really want to be a, a discerning consumer of information, whether it's history or whether it's news, which are kind of the same thing, just one deals with more recent events than the other, learn language so that you can, as you're reading a news story or a history book or whatever it is, you can spot when a person is is inserting subjectivity into something in a way that is disguised as objective, right? Because sometimes subjectivity and bias is easy to spot if you're at all paying attention and looking for it. Sometimes it can be a little bit harder, but um, you know, learn the difference between fact and opinion to where you can spot an opinion even when it's phrased as fact. Like, for example, in a lot of U.S. history textbooks, sooner or later somewhere you'll find, I don't know, maybe a sentence or just a little phrase here or there that'll basically say FDR's New Deal did all these great things and they've backed away in recent, in recent decades from it's not as common to see like, Oh, the new deal just flat out fixed the depression. That's, that's less because that's been people in the field, even people who very sympathetic to the new deal will generally admit now that like, no, it didn't like quote unquote fix the depression, at least not across the board. But you know, things like that where, where they will say things like, you know, again, the, the New Deal fixed the economy or something like that. And they'll state it as if this is just objective fact, like two plus two equals four. And if you're not knowledgeable and read on the topic, you may not realize that um, just as uh, consensuses in science are not as, not as common and not as robust as most people on the outside think, same thing with claims like that. You know, When a history book Most historians don't know much economics at all, and most of the economics they do know is bad economics anyway. Mm. But if if, if an historian makes a claim, say, about uh, the Great Depression happened because of blah, 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 if you don't know that there are actually contending schools of thought, that there are different historians and economists who have very different takes on why the Great Depression happened, you don't know that the sentence you just read saying the Great Depression was caused by X, Y, Z is actually um, a thesis rather than a fact. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're aware of the fact that different schools of thought exist on the topic, then when you see that sentence saying the Great Depression happens because of X, Y, Z, you'll know, oh, no, 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 that's not necessarily like just objective fact. That's this person's argument, which I may or may not agree with. Yeah. And so as, as your knowledge develops on a topic, you you get, you get learn enough of what used to be the unknown unknowns that you're then able to spot opinion when it's dressed up as fact. Um, In general, I think it's worthwhile to uh, study things like logical fallacies because by by having labels for some of these techniques, it makes it easier to spot them and kind of quickly evaluate what they are. Whereas if you don't know logical fallacies, you might not spot them. Maybe something in your subconscious is like something's kind of fishy about this this argument over here, but you can't quite, you know, put put your finger on it, and then that might kind of, um, I don't know, muddle your thinking on it a little bit. Whereas, if you know what logical, at least what a lot of the common logical fallacies are, you can spot them and go, oh yeah, that's just an argument from authority. Move on. Yeah. Right? And so one of the ones that's that's very common in history is it's sort of like two sides of the coin. There's checking on the one hand, and then there's the lie by omission on there. Those are very common and they're also very common in propaganda and they're very common in some of the most effective propaganda because whether you're cherry picking or lying by omission and again to me those are almost sort of the same thing just coming at it from a different direction then one of the big points I would make about propaganda in general is the most effective propaganda is always going to be the propaganda that doesn't appear to be propaganda to most people you know, if it's obviously like ham-fisted propaganda, like it's, you know, North Korean stuff or whatever, most people are going to realize what it is. Yeah. Like and even a lot of the North Koreans, I'm sure, don't really believe it, but they're just doing what they have to do to not end up in like a horrific prison gulag or something. But if you're, if you're using cherry picking or using lying by omission or some combination thereof, why that's so effective is that the information you're giving to somebody through whatever medium you're using are things that are true, right? People that have never studied or thought about propaganda often will kind of think or say, oh yeah, propaganda is lies. And that's not necessarily true. Now, it, it's true that it's deceptive in that it's designed to manipulate your beliefs without you realizing that your beliefs are being manipulated. So it's deceptive. But a lot of the most effective propaganda is either mostly or perhaps even entirely factual. But either those facts are very carefully chosen to support a particular narrative or other facts relevant to the story are being deliberately left out because they interfere with the narrative you're trying to construct. Or you could be doing both at the same time, which is very common. So, you know, the lie by omission is is a very, very common way that people manipulate a narrative. And I try to avoid this in my own work. And this is the idea that I talked about in in episode 200 of Honest History. I, I conclude in there That I don't think objective history could ever really be a thing other than at the most superficial level of basically like a timeline, right? Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like D Day happened in June of 1944. Like, okay, fine. That's objective. But as soon as you start to dig into any more depth than that, very quickly things start to, values and, and things start to enter into the equation. And so my point was, you know, with honest history, which is like sort of the ideal that I try to strive for in my own work, that honest history. Is trying, maybe not always succeeding, but trying to avoid being propaganda. And one of the ways is honest history really tries to avoid things like lies by omission and cherry picking. And so, you know, when there's a a fact, a, a piece of evidence, or information that contradicts my argument or my belief about something, I do not hide it. And I'll point out, you know, hey, look, here's this one piece of information that might contradict my take on this topic or whatever. And then I try to either say why I don't think it ultimately does contradict larger points I'm making or then explain why, oh, actually, I'm going to change my take on this because I've encountered this new information. Because my takes on a lot of topics have changed over the years as I've learned more about them. You know, if you went back maybe like 10 years ago, I probably would have been more sympathetic to the kind of lost-cause narrative that hey, this, the Confederates really weren't primarily concerned about slavery at all. They just cared about <laughs> states' rights and the tariff. And I probably would have been more sympathetic to that for a variety of reasons. Sure. But then I sat down and read hundreds of pages of primary sources of Southerners saying flat out again and again and again, like a broken record, we are seceding primarily because of slavery. It's like, okay, well, gee whiz. I've got to change my take in light of evidence. So you know, that's another thing about my approach to history is I try to approach history in the way that a scientist is supposed to approach science. Now, in practice, of course, they often don't. I, a scientist should always see everything they know as provisionally true. Always, even a even the theory that seems very robust and backed up by countless you know, experiments and things, whatever. Still, there's this tiny little percent chance that should always be there in the back of your mind everything I believe could be disproved tomorrow. Mm. And also not marrying your identity and your self-esteem to any of your, your beliefs. Right. So that when new evidence comes along that you know, ought to cause you to change your take on an issue... You don't feel like it's an attack on your identity, which is what most people do, as we know. And you know, yep. I've I've been guilty of it myself. I'm sure you have it at some point. But the point is, like, I try not to. I'm at least making an effort to avoid falling into that. So, you know, hopefully, I avoid falling in falling into it more uh, as often as most people do, where you just defend your belief because you feel like it's part of your identity, and you feel like any person or even piece of information that is challenging your view is an attack on you and that's when your defenses go up and the backfire effect happens there's all those psychological experiments that show how this works so sorry about that probably went on like like 15 tangents that you know were were only tangentially related but no
1: it was yeah no that's that's perfect it's and i think one thing that you didn't hit on there but one thing that you have hit on a lot on your on your show is Manichaeanism, where it's good guys versus bad guys and you know like the libertarian manichaeism might be you know everything is the central bank's fault for instance
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, you know, every every problem ultimately goes back to the state, yeah. or everything the state does is bad. Now, you know, we might argue that the state is a fundamentally morally flawed institution mm-hmm. because it relies on coercion and all that. It sort of has the original sin of, of aggression in its, you know, existence, essentially. Yeah. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean like a government or a person acting on behalf of a government can never do something that is positive, yeah. right? And, and we kind of look silly if we pretend that that's the case, that like nobody has ever actually, you know, I don't know, if my bike gets stolen and I call the cops because even though I'm a libertarian, like in the world I live in right now, <laughs> that's the only game in town. Yeah. And I call the cops and they succeed for once in locating my bike and returning it to me. Like, you know, there's, there's 20 billion other things the cops might do that day that i would think are bad but i look silly if i'm gonna just like you know pretend that like oh this really sucks that these guys actually went and got my bike back yeah so
1: yeah filing re- police reports i'm always like uh of two minds on that i mean even just to file an insurance claim you got to have a police report number so all right cool well i don't want to keep you too long because um, we both got plans today it's a saturday
0: so why don't you go ahead and plug your website and socials and whatever else you want people to find you on Ah, uh, sure. Yeah. So, if uh, you just type in dangeroushistorypodcast.com, that will take you to my homepage. And if you just search "dangerous history podcast" on whatever uh, platform, podcatcher, whatever that you use to listen to your podcasts on, I'm probably on it. I think I'm on all the all the common ones and have been for a long time. And uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's dangerous, dangerous history CJ. I think, and the at is, I believe. P-R-O-F-C-J-D-O-T-O-R-G, which is also will also take you to my website, profcj.org, same thing. Um, and yeah, Dangerous History Podcast on, on Facebook. And like I said, right now I'm on, uh, released about a week ago, episode eight in my Woodrow Wilson series. That's my current big ongoing thing, although I'm doing other smaller stuff in between Wilson episodes. And uh, just to give you a sense of how detailed I'm going, because a lot of libertarians know Wilson's not a good guy. Uh-huh. He's a very common person for libertarians to say, you know, worst president in, in history or one of the worst. But what I'm doing with the series is going beyond just like the headlines where they're like, oh yeah, the Federal Reserve passed under him. He got us into World War I, screwed that up, kind of set the, some of the groundwork for World War Like that's, that's pretty commonly known among well-read libertarians. But what I'm doing is I'm going, yeah, that's part of it, but way, way deeper into the weeds. Like, no, there's so much more layers to why you should, even if you're not a libertarian, even if you're not an anarchist, if you're just someone who even thinks that like human freedom and peace and prosperity are like kind of good things, then Woodrow Wilson is pretty bad. He's also racist too, by the way, um, <laughs> one of our more racist presidents in the yeah. 20th century. And that that's the only thing the establishment doesn't like about him. The establishment loves everything else Wilson uh-huh. said and did in his entire career. But now he's, he's uh, you know kind of blacklisted a little bit now just because they can't hide that he was pretty racist. But like everything else about him is fine in their opinion. My opinion, no, everything else about him is pretty horrible too. So I'm eight episodes in, and I've just gotten through his first year as president. So that's how detailed we're going to be. I had one episode that was several hours just taking apart his writings as an academic because he was a professor and an academic for decades before he ever got into politics. And he was in political science. So you've got this unique opportunity with Wilson that you don't have with almost any other president other than maybe to some degree some of the early like Jefferson Madison types, which is he wrote a ton before he ever got into politics about politics. And, you know, you can't trust at face value what a politician says or writes during a campaign or while they're in office because they're politicians. They're Mm -hmm. trying to get people's votes and whatever. But presumably what Wilson wrote as a tenured professor does reflect his actual thoughts and beliefs because he would have no reason to uh to hide what he really believed about things so that episode was a while back but anyway if you want several hours digging deep into what wilson really believed and whatever so yeah the episode that's a long plug but that's that's what i'm in right now
1: well no it's definitely much needed though and also the i think he did an episode on his early life too which was super fascinating
0: yeah, that was probably the the very first one in the series because sure. I'm kind of I'm I'm going mostly chronologically, but then I'm also doing some episodes that are more topical. So I did the one on his academic work that was kind of topical, um, and then other than other than continuing the the, the narrative of his life and career, um, the two the two standalone episodes or sorry the two kind of topical Wilson episodes I've got in the planning stages as well. I'm going to do one episode in the Wilson series specifically on Wilson and race, mm. but like all of his you know. Uh, at least that I'm aware of, all of his major statements and actions that deal on on the question of him being a racist. And then also, I'm going to do an episode, and I'm going back and forth in my head over whether this will be on the on the public feed or whether I'll only share it with my supporters on Patreon and stuff. I am going to do an episode that I'm going to call something like Woodrow Wilson's Banana Wars, because... He didn't just get America into World War One. He was he was a kind of like neo-lib trigger happy interventionist mm-hmm. from the get go. Now he talked like a peacenik, as these people often do, but he was quite trigger happy with with um, a lot of things that Smedley Butler was involved with. By the way, in uh, intervening in places like Mexico, he actually invaded Mexico twice. Um, he he occupied Haiti militarily. Um, I forget off the top of my head a n- number of other Latin American and Caribbean countries that uh, he sent you know troops into often. Uh, U.S. Marines and things like that. So yeah, Woodrow Wilson's banana wars.
1: Nice. Well, I can't wait. And then, as a patron of your show, I would also obviously recommend to my listeners that they consider giving you a couple bucks a month too, because you know, a community college professors' salary isn't the best in the world. So.
0: No, no, it is not. It's, you know, it's basically, um, my, I think last time I checked, my salary might actually be either the same or slightly lower than a high school teacher. Jesus Christ. On the other hand, on the other hand, my job is better. Um, my hours are, usually better. They weren't last year, but, um, and my benefits are better. So, you know, I can't complain too much, but yeah, um, it's not making me rich. Well, the, the most life-changing professors
1: I ever had were in community college. Those, those two years of my life were my favorite years academically. So thanks for, thanks for doing the yeoman's work and maybe changing a few people's lives. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'm going
0: to be going back to it in about a month. Awesome. Woohoo! At least the COVID (laughs) protocols will be over. Yeah, for sure. Okay, cool. Well, thanks CJ. My pleasure. Great talking to you.
1: You too. Bye.